Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. We're back. Plenary Session. Unedited monologues. This is what, this is what we're going to do in season four. It's hashtag zero COVID. We're not talking about COVID. And if you go outside, no one's talking about it. It's back. It's back. People are back and, and we're back. We're back on oncology. Uh, so far this season, we've had some great interviews. George Sledge, Nina Shaw. We're going to have more interviews coming up. I don't want to spoil it for you. But today I have a few things to talk about. I want to talk about a little thing I saw on Twitter. And let me, let me share my screen if that's doable here. I saw this. This was by Graham Collins. Uh, this is something, a slide that he saw from, I guess, a talk he went to. And, and this was, I thought, a little interesting management. Um, an approach to high tumor burden follicular lymphoma 2021. Uh, BR, frontline, sure. We've got, we've got some randomized data there. Followed by Revlimid rituximab. Oh, that's a great, that's a great study because you got Revlimid rituximab randomized against rituximab. Um, yeah, not, not exactly, not exactly what I like to see, because obviously if somebody can tolerate Revlimid rituximab, I wouldn't be giving them rituximab. I'd be giving them something stronger. Um, of course, if you're fit, then you get CAR-T, <laughs> but if you're not fit, then you can think about, uh, Tezemostat. Uh, sure, sure. If they happen to have that one mutation. And then of course, um, everyone trickles down to the PI3 kinase inhibitor. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> I saw this. I, I don't know what the, the purpose of this slide is, but I will say a few things about this topic. Um, this is not good. With follicular lymphoma, you don't need to be giving all of these drugs. They don't have credible evidence. Um, we have some PI3 kinase inhibitor studies in combination with rituximab versus rituximab placebo. Uh, is that acceptable in follicular lymphoma? I think not. I think we wanna see that against an actual control arm of our chemotherapy. Revlimid rituximab R-squared, does it have activity? Sure. Activity means it can shrink tumors in some fraction of people. Does it have efficacy? Is it better than alternatives? And the answer is I have no clue at all because the only data I have are the flawed randomized trial against placebo rituximab. What about that um, tezemostat? I have uncontrolled data. What am I to do with uncontrolled data from a novel costly drug? Um, and what about CAR-T in the fit? Again, Zuma 5, uncontrolled data. Um, I look forward to randomized data. Um, I got a lot of problems with this space. 
We have a standard of care for a reason in lymphoma. Um, that reason was not always randomized trials that showed every step of the way was beneficial because this was developed in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. They naturally used the standards of evidence of that time, which often was uncontrolled studies. But now we're in 2020. We're in 2021. We're in a time where the standard of care should only change based on randomized controlled trials showing superiority. The thing about the old studies was back in those days, the cost of a cancer drug wasn't four times the average household income, okay? These were cheap drugs. So you could get, and also the knowledge of science also changes over time. You know, um, they didn't do randomized controlled trials in the stone age. Does that mean we should never do them today? The standard of evidence gets better over time. So for those reasons, I think you ought to test these drugs against the best available standard of care, which is our chemotherapy and flick lymphoma. If it's been long enough, you can give them BR again. You can give them our CVP. You can give them our CHOP. These are all regimens with activity. If they're frail, you can give them our cyclophosphamide. You can give them our chlorambucil. You can give them all these drugs. You don't need to get into R squared Tezemostat, PI3 kinase inhibitor. You can save those for for the, the the for lines beyond these lines. Of course, we know flick lymphoma. Sometimes when it progresses, it's transformed. In which case, we're on a different pathway entirely. Um, I don't know what to say. I think it's a shame that we permit these drugs very broad marketing authorizations based on evidence that is quite flimsy. Um, somebody was arguing with me online, and they said, "Well, you know, the thing about." Revlimid rituximab versus rituximab is the control arm is fair because a lot of people can only tolerate monotherapy with rituximab. And I wanted to say, sure, that's plausible um, in some people's minds, not in my mind, but I'm sure you could argue that. But in this algorithm, you do note that after they have exhausted R squared, they get CAR T therapy. So you mean to tell me that you got somebody so fit they can get CAR T therapy, but they couldn't tolerate anything more than rituximab? Get out of here. Get out of here. You're not fooling me. We all know why the companies want these lackluster, subpar, unethical control arm studies. And that's because they get the market share. It's up to the doctors, the trialists, the sensible people to say, we need control arms that actually reflect what's going on in the world, which is our chemotherapy. To be perfectly honest with you, if I had none of these options, I'm not sure, I'm not sure patients would be any worse off. I have no credible evidence that any of those options is superior to just giving different types of chemotherapy. We don't have any good studies in this space. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that an embarrassment for follicular lymphoma? So when I saw this, I chuckled and I said something like, this is like how you'd make an algorithm if it was designed by the pharmaceutical industry. And ironically, it's probably gonna be that way very shortly in the NCCN because that's almost an extension of that. Um, one, because as Aaron Mitchell and colleagues pointed out that many NCCN authors have financial conflict of interest with the industry, I would think it was 85% with a mean payment of $16,000, which is more than your average oncology bear, uh, oncology physician. The second piece of evidence is that the NCCN often extrapolates beyond available data to make their drugs more um, to make novel costly drugs uh, be given to more people, uh, often based on low levels of evidence or no evidence at all. And the citation for that is the paper I did with Jeff Wagner in the BMJ, uh, frequency and level of evidence of the NCCN recommendations. Um, I think we're in a bad place. 
We're in a bad place in lymphoma where you're starting to approve many, many drugs based on either uncontrolled studies or studies with bad control arms. And then you create algorithms where you don't give any of the other regimens that we are used to giving um, and instead give these more costly regimens without ever having proven superiority to what we're actually doing. Standard of care is a slippery beast in biomedicine. It may come into being based on all sorts of reasons, including historical accident, uncontrolled studies. But once there, once standard of care is in place and you do a randomized trial, you have to randomize control arm patients to the standard of care. You can't just give them placebo rituximab saying, well, the evidence wasn't that great when you developed the standard of care. Imagine if they did that for um, EVDs or VP shunts or, or appendix removal. Those are all standard of cares developed for uh, uh, in a time where we didn't routinely do randomized control trials. So um, my position is the following. Randomized control trials are the best way to assess if novel therapies are superior to current standard of care. But the second part of my principle is that when you do those studies, the control arm has to receive the standard of care. They can't receive subpar care, even if that standard of care was not itself supported by randomized control trials because it was developed in an era where we didn't require that routinely. So medical evidence can get better. The standards of evidence should get better. And just because they didn't do it in 19 diggity doesn't mean we can't do it today. So those are my thoughts on this topic. Next topic, ivermectin. This is zero COVID, so I'm not gonna talk about ivermectin. I'm just going to say a couple things because it has relevance to oncology. I got sucked into this reading this meta-analysis on ivermectin, and I have nothing but regrets, as one would when one gets sucked into reading a meta-analysis of bad randomized control trials uh, and beyond observational studies. A meta-analysis of observational studies is like a septic tank. It's nothing good that comes from putting all that together. Um, it's no good. Um, uh, I don't know what to say. Um, we're going to talk about this in the last part when I'm going to take you through a, a new paper of mine. Um, but what do I want to say about this? When I looked at this, I noticed a few flaws with the data set. One, um, they were extolling underpowered randomized control trials that were not designed or suited to find survival differences that happened to find very large survival differences. Um, that's bad. If your primary endpoint is not survival and you do a 50-person randomized control trial and find a 20-month survival benefit, um, that's very likely to be spurious. Um, we all know underpowered studies uh, mean you're prone to false negative results, i.e. that you failed to find a difference when in fact a difference existed. But what is underappreciated is that severely underpowered studies are also prone to when they do find positive results, that those results are more likely to be exaggerated and are spurious. Um, and if you want to see the mathematics behind that, there's a paper, I think, in, in one of the nature journals um, called Power Failure, and it was about neuroscience. Uh, it'll run you through the equations that prove that to be the case. So when I looked at this meta-analysis and I saw that people were um, praising underpowered randomized trials, something ivermectin works, um, I thought to myself, shoot, what about Pola BR? You know, people say Pola BR has a survival benefit over BR. What they don't realize is that that's an underpowered phase two study and that's an accelerated approval. Um, and uh, we don't know if that finding is true. Let's replicate that study with some real sample size that can actually assess survival. In fact, I suspect it's almost surely exaggerated and it may be spurious entirely. We will see. I also thought of Olaritumab or Lartruvo, that uh, soft tissue sarcoma drug. Well, that's a great example. Underpowered phase two study find a huge, almost incredulous OS benefit. And then the phase three randomized control trial found superimposable OS curves. So 
you know, we're critical of ivermectin for being, I think, uh, borderline conspiracy theory, low-level science. But look, we got two examples in our own field. And what about um, Saber Comet or all these oligometastatic RCTs? Uh, where's your power calc? Where's your phase three study? You are, have already implemented this based on phase two studies that are not designed or suited or powered for OS. Let's do a real study with adequate power. So that was one thing that jumped out at me when I looked at it. The next thing were anecdotes. Somebody said that, you know, they had somebody on the vent and they gave them some ivermectin and they're all of a sudden their labs started to correct and things started to go in the right direction. Um, so, you know, we don't need randomized trials. We have experience. What could be better than experience? Uh, well, of course, experience is misleading, deeply misleading. And I also saw parallel to oncology. I hate to say it, my friends. Um, you know, we give tocilizumab in CAR-Ts. Uh, yeah, uh, where's your randomized trial of TOSI? Where's your randomized trial of... Um, um, Anakinra, that's the new one. Anakinra, we'll give sub-Q Anakinra. Uh, yeah, why don't you do a little bit of a randomized trial and let's see what these actually do uh, versus merely the natural course of some of these conditions. Um, I think those are important studies to do and the apprehension of doing them, I think is not so good. What about the patient um, who we refer to molecular sequencing um, and then we find out that they have... Um, a TSC, TSC1 mutation, we give them Everlimus. And let's say their tumor doesn't shrink, but we think the, the, that it slows the growth. Uh, So-called precision oncology or molecular tumor board panels. Uh, is that any better than ivermectin? Uh, telling some story, some fable about what you think you saw, what you thought you experienced? Um, I don't think so. Um, and then finally, what about aducanumab, uh, the Alzheimer's drug? Oh, this is a great drug, right? Obviously, uh, it's been, uh, I've never seen so many people um, universally crush a drug in the op-ed pages. But the bottom line is um, Biogen uh, ran trials that either failed to accrue, failed to meet the primary endpoint, uh, or otherwise negative. They change uh, uh, amyloid protein, which is a poor and unreliable surrogate. In fact, even calling it a surrogate seems an overstatement because we have little credible evidence that altering it actually changes the condition. Um, yet we get an approval for Alzheimer's, all comers, which is potentially 6 million people at $56,000 a pop, which if you assume one in three people actually get the product, you're talking about a budgetary impact of $112 billion, which will crush us, a crushing budgetary impact. What's my point here? My point here is that ivermectin, it turns out YouTube censored videos that extol ivermectin. Am I a fan of ivermectin? No, I think ivermectin needs a large randomized trial or STFU or keep quiet. I don't wanna waste my time with ivermectin. I think a large randomized trial, if I were to put money on it, it will be negative. And why will it be negative? Because most things in biomedicine don't actually work. We have low pretest probability, particularly of drugs. Ivermectin will have a low pretest probability in severe illness and prophylaxis and all these things. And if you do a really clean, elegant, large randomized control trial, it's gonna go bust. Um, people said, well, there's no money to do that. You know, um, it's a conspiracy because nobody gets rich off ivermectin. Well, guess what? There's no money in the big dexamethasone business, but they actually did it there. So spare me the excuses. But my point is this. YouTube has now thrown their videos off the platform. I'm happy to let them keep their videos on the platform because, you know, YouTube is full of garbage. Let's be honest. Um, but, but, but what I think the crux of the issue is, what about aducanumab? The evidence for aducanumab and the evidence for ivermectin are both very low quality. In fact, probably ivermectin, maybe even, uh, let's not, let's not, let's, when you get that low, let's not, let's not actually make comparisons. They're both in the garbage section of the evidence base. But yet, aducanumab very likely will be advertised on YouTube as advertisements. 
So YouTube is a very interesting, uh, I think, technology company that actively bans you talking about one unproven drug um, while probably running advertisements for many other unproven drugs. Um, one happens to have the FDA stamp of approval, but if anything, doesn't that lend itself to the credence of these conspiracy theorists who think that if there was a way to make money off ivermectin, we would have gotten an accelerated approval? <laughs> Maybe. Um, you know, I think there's a bigger failure here, which is that we do a very lousy job of communicating medical evidence. That lousy job translates into some things in the Western uh, accepted medical canon, like your molecular tumor board. I urge people who run these molecular tumor boards, randomize 500 people to your molecular tumor board or send them to a clinic where a good doctor like myself thinks about what to give him. And maybe we give him some metoposide, some cytoxin, some platinum and measure overall survival. And in fact, I did the power calculation for such a study. It's in the Annals of Oncology. It's called why F1CDX should get a randomized trial before Medicare pays for it. I did that power calculation. So I can tell you exactly how to do that study. Um, I suspect your molecular tumor board may fall short because I think even with old cytotoxic drugs in salvage settings in, so in solid tumors, I can easily match you or beat you in OS. You can do whatever sequencing you want and give them whatever pazopinibs and imatinibs and whatever the hell you want to give them. But I bet I'll win because I don't have to waste my time waiting for tumor board results that are inconclusive. I don't have to um, uh, bet the farm on some targeted TKI that's actually quite intolerable when you dose it daily. Um, and, and I can deliver my drugs very quickly. Um, but you've never done that study. You've never done that study. Um, and yet you continue to have your molecular tumor boards. Um, the ivermectin people are not doing a proper randomized trial there, but aticanumab didn't. So I think we have a real crisis when the bar between FDA approved and the topic of a conspiracy theory is a very narrow distinction between those two. The answer, of course, is clear. Everybody needs to produce evidence or they need to stop making claims. And so claiming that R-squared is better than our chemotherapy is an unfounded claim. Claiming that we can't randomize people to anything other than R versus R-squared is unfounded if your pathway shuttles them to CAR-T thereafter. If they can tolerate a CAR-T after they've progressed, surely they could have tolerated something more than rituximab. So evidence is this very interesting thing. It's a tool. It applies to both canonical medical practices, as well as alternative, complementary, uh, fringe medical views. And you need a framework of evidence that has some consistency. And when I look across these spaces, I see very little consistency. Polar BR, that has FDA approval. Well, by that logic, then some of these garbage, these garbage small randomized trials of ivermectin, maybe they should get FDA approval too. I disagree. They shouldn't, because that's an underpowered study. But then why the hell did Polar BR get it? Why did olaritumumab get it? They shouldn't get it either, okay? So we need to do some soul searching. We need to appreciate medical evidence. We need to understand medical evidence. We need to understand why large randomized trials are the best, which I'm gonna show you in the third and third part of this, of this extemporaneous monologue. Um, and we need to have clear standards. I'm happy to tar and feather the proponents of ivermectin, but I also want to tar and feather the proponents of aducanumab too. They're all the same in my view. They're people who try to foist upon society useless things that don't work. The ivermectin people, at least they're cheap. You people are gonna bankrupt us. So actually, I don't know what's better or worse. I don't like to split hairs when we're in the garbage can of medical evidence. Okay, the last part, the new paper I have. I hope you can see my screen because now there's literally nobody out there to tell me. And that's also a stupid cliche thing that I've heard too much this year. Okay. Go to my website, 
vinaikaprasad.com papers. When, when I talk about a paper, this is the place you want to go look for it. And here's what you'll find. Reliable, cheap, fast, and few has a link. This is the new paper out. It's in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. Okay. I want to talk about this little paper because it, it, um, it piqued my interest. And I want to show you a couple things about it. Um, I got this idea last summer. And I thought to myself, you know, there's really three major types of study design. There are randomized control trials, at least when we talk about the efficacy of therapeutics. There are retrospective observational studies, and there are synthetic or historical control arm studies. This is the, the new frontier. Everyone's getting all excited about synthetic control arms. What are these studies? What are their advantages, disadvantages? It's all in this paper, but let me walk you through it. Um, one, reliability. What you want more than anything is you want reliable causal inference. You want to know for sure this therapy does what you think it does. Um, that actually comes best from large pragmatic randomized control trials like recovery, like taste, like stampede, very large studies with very low inclusion criteria. You include everybody, average people in your, com in your country, and then you sort out whether or not randomized to this intervention or not this intervention, you have a benefit. Okay, that's reliable. Randomized controlled trials are hitting the ball out of the park when it comes to that type of uh, internal validity, when it comes to reliability. When they make them pragmatic, I think it's the, it's the strongest truth claim in all of biomedicine that something actually works. What about observational propensity, score matched, weighted, um, inverse probability weighted kind of studies? The answer is they have some concordance with those large, well-done randomized controlled trials, but the concordance is not infallible. There is a failure rate. And in the paper, I describe that that failure rate is asymmetric, that these observational studies are much more likely to conclude that an unproven therapy that's toxic and invasive works rather than an unproven therapy that's toxic and invasive doesn't work. Let me put that another way. When they find, these observational studies find examine practices, they find when these observational studies um, claim something works, it mostly doesn't work. When they claim something doesn't work, it mostly doesn't work. Doesn't work is the key right answer most of the time, but the observational studies insert the illusion uh, that tends to say that more toxic, more invasive things work. And that's probably confounding by indication, i.e. these things are being deployed in healthier people, which is hard to separate from the effect of the therapy. And thus it gives the illusion uh, that the therapy is actually doing something when it is in fact a selection bias for that therapy. Uh, I think that's the bulk of it. Um, so that's the problem with these retrospective observational studies, these NC these NCDB studies, uh, you can read the paper for some examples. I've just given you a few. Um, but what about the other parts of the argument that's reliable? Reliable, cheap, fast, and few. Cheap and fast. This is interesting to me. We want this to be cheap. We want to find these answers without spending as much money as possible. And randomized trials, they're damned expensive, I keep hearing. They're $50,000 per person. Who the hell can afford these randomized studies? Well, it turns out if you don't do the randomized studies and you just deploy interventions, you're going to have to do it to a bunch of people before you have enough people to analyze for your observational study. And how many people is that? Well, the answer is in a pooled analysis of two studies I look at, it's anything from one to six to like one to eight. Um, in other words, eight times or six times as many people have to be subjected to an intervention um, if you just deploy it before you run your observational study than if you had randomized. And that should be natural, right? If you deploy a treatment, a lot of people are going to gain access before you have time to assess whether or not it works. And that lot of people is probably far more than the power calculation of a randomized control trial. So in this paper, I did something 
well, that I thought was interesting. I don't know if you think it's interesting, but I think it's quite interesting, which is I did some math, which apparently I still remembered how to do, perhaps not so well. Uh, but basically it says, if you assume this cost per participant in an RCT, $50 per person, which is what they achieved in taste, 1,000, 20,000, 50,000, which is what I've highlighted in bold. This is the price per therapy where it's actually cheaper to do the randomized study um, if the therapy costs more than X. In other words, if it's $8,000 or more, it's cheaper to do the RCT. Now, why is that the case? Um, it's the case because even if you account for a $50,000 premium per person in an RCT, uh, you would have had to treat so many more people in the community that that $9,000 medicine would actually cost more if you just deployed it in the community than if you actually did the RCT, giving it to fewer people, but paying 50K per person uh, to be in your study. And that's, I think, um, a sort of on the high-end figure. Um, but it does remind us that most things in oncology, we're not talking about $8,000 medicines, and that's for the total cost of the thing. We're talking about $400,000 a pop or $200,000 a year. So most things in oncology... Um, are actually cheaper to assess in a randomized fashion than a target trial or an observational study because you have to give it to far fewer people before you sort it out. Uh, fast and few, randomized trials answer questions rather quickly. And I give some examples in the paper of when we didn't do them, how long it took to get the answer. And few randomized trials only, uh, uh, are they limited to some degree the number of people who are um, provided an inferior therapy? Um, that is either the losing arm of a randomized control trial, um, but that number of people in the community, if you just deploy things, might be far, far bigger. And you'll have to read the paper to, to see how I think about that. But what's my take home here? My take home here is that there are many people who want to talk about the limitations of randomized trials. Sure, I'm one of those people. In fact, the book Malignant gets into a lot of the limitations of randomized control trials. Just because you're a randomized study doesn't mean you're running a good randomized study. But in contrast, if you are making a therapeutic claim of efficacy in the absence of a large, adequately powered randomized trial, you are making a somewhat unreliable claim. The degree of unreliability is linked to the degree to which your claim falls short of a well-done, adequately powered randomized control trial. Um, aducanumab, sort of a tenuous claim. Uh, ivermectin, tenuous claim. Uh, Olaritumumab, tenuous claim. Polar-BR, tenuous claim. Uh, oligometastatic radiation, tenuous claim. You don't have adequately powered randomized studies. Uh, that entire algorithm for follicular lymphoma, tenuous claims. You have bad control arms or no control arms at all. Um, so you suffer from reliability. That's what randomization gets around. Um, you actually ironically might even increase cost. Uh, low regulatory hurdles will just flood the market with very costly drugs. And if they cost more than $8,000 per pop, um, it probably would have been cheaper to do a randomized study. $8,000 per pop is actually uh, far lower than the majority of things we do in oncology. There are not too many things we do cheaper than that. So most things in our line of work, not only is it more reliable to do the randomized study, it's actually cheaper too. And that's the key point of the paper. Uh, I think that's the key insight of the paper. So we've been talking a while. This is the new plenary session, hashtag zero COVID, which means I have no uh, continuing interest in something that is uh, that is dwindling. And we're going to talk about oncology. And I hope we did that a little bit here. I'll be back in future episodes. I'm going to take you through this um, immunotherapy paper about fecal transplant immunotherapy. It'll be a good one. And I'm looking for uh, uh, pivotal randomized control trials to talk about. I think I talked about a couple in our ASCO roundup, and we will talk about more in the weeks to come. And I'm going to try to book some of the luminaries in oncology to get you their perspective. The last thing I would say, 
Um, some people ask me why you don't argue more with the people on your show. And I guess I would say for a couple of reasons. Um, but the biggest reason is uh, is that I would just feel bad about it. I mean, I, I don't know. I invite someone to come on this show. This is a very modest enterprise, let's be honest. Um, if I invite them just to argue with them, uh, perhaps in a strong way, uh, and if I make them look poor, I think that's a poor reflection of the host. And so it's just merely a sense of, of etiquette uh, that keeps me from it. But my views are very clear. The goal of cancer medicine is to improve survival and quality of life. The goal of very costly drugs is to know with certainty uh, or some confidence that you do that. And there are ways to do that that require better appraisals of evidence. Um, you need to do randomized studies. When you do randomized studies, the control arm needs to be what you'd otherwise do. The post-protocol therapy needs to be what you would otherwise do in both arms. Uh, sometimes if you're moving a therapy from last line to front line, you need crossover. And if you have a therapy that's never proven benefit, uh, you don't need it. And you can check out the YouTube videos on clinical trial appraisal to learn about this crossover issue that Allison Haslam and I uh, first defined in the Annals of Oncology a few years ago. When you are doing this N of one personalized oncology, it is infeasible to do a randomized control trial for every mutation you find, but you can do a randomized control trial of the strategy. And the most important point here is that whether something is Western, canonical medicine, or fringe alternative medicine, evidence is the same. And if we are to uh, be critical of ivermectin, even lampoon the people who promote it, we should also be critical of some of the things that we have embraced, Pola BR. Polar BR, that study is just too small to have any strong OS benefit. If you doubt that, look at Lartruvo. It was the exact same thing, but they did a follow-up study. Um, oligometastatic radiation, it's nothing but small phase two trials. Do the large phase three trial. We need some consistent framework, and I will hope to define that in the weeks to come. So on that positive note, we're done. Short episode, plenary session. We'll be back with more, more interviews. Good ones coming. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.